Okay, Eric, so look, uh, we're going we're gonna to jump th straight through it. We've been getting a bunch of questions in from Slido. We've had an awesome day here in London um, awesome. so far. So, uh, yeah, let's, let's go with a uh, jump straight in, if you don't mind. Sure, yeah. Let me just say I'm sorry that I can't be there in person. I'm, I have, I have final, final manuscript pages right here in my hand for the new book. And so uh, it's like... Uh, like the, the, the movie is a courier where the briefcase is handcuffed to you. I am handcuffed to my desk until I get these uh, revisions done. So uh, it has severely limited my ability to travel, but I'm, I'm, I hear it's gone great and uh, glad to be able to do this by video at least. Yeah, thanks. Well, well look, I, th I hope, uh, I think we're going to get you to London pretty soon, uh, uh, I hope. So I'm really looking forward to it. Cool. Thanks so much. Well, we've had a great gathering here from all across Europe. Um, got some deep learning uh, throughout the day, so people are pretty charged to go and take that back to their organizations and their startups. Amen. And, uh, some connections made. So it's good. So uh, let me see. Let's. Uh, why not let's go with a question from Lynn Coleman. Uh, so what's the next big step change for a lean startup? I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I mean, it's funny. From the outside the evolution of the movement does appear like it looks like step changes. It, it's very much like a startup where, you know, people joke about how such and such startup is an overnight success. But if you talk to the people who are there, it's generally a 10 year overnight success um, because the world is really large and we forget how big it is. So I, I, we've done a number of these conferences now over the years and every time, I mean, I'm not with. I'm not joking. Every time, including the most recent one that I was at, I'm sure this happened today uh, at the conference in London. It happened at the conference we had uh, recently in New York. Every single time, at least one person like comes up to me, comes up to our staff to let us know that they just read the Lean Startup book like the day before, and it j they just happened to hear about the conference. Like literally, there was one guy who was like, I was on a plane. And I read, I was reading the book, and I realized the conference was coming up like next week, and I had to like, change my plans to like land a different. I was like, the people like just found out about it. So, you know, the the movement has actually grown very continuously. There haven't been these like discrete moments where like all of a sudden it's something different. It's just new people hear about it every single day, and and I mean, many of you in the audience have been evangel evangelists for the idea or will be evangelists, and it's important for us as a movement to remember that the absolute majority, probably the vast majority of people that will ever be influenced by these ideas have not even heard about them yet. So as big as we feel like we are sometimes, as far as we're proud, of course, so proud of how far we've come. Um, from the days when you know it was just me and Steve Blank yelling at some MBAs in a classroom who I thought we were totally nuts. Um, we've come a long way since then, but we have much further to go than we have come so far. And I would say that the tipping point that I'm really focused on, and certainly this is the focus of my new book and, and kind of my more recent work from a point of view of, of a theoretical work, it's so easy to forget that the goal of a startup is to get large that I actually meet a lot of startup people who hate big companies and hate established organizations and hate bureaucracy. And I always ask them the same thing. If you hate big companies so much, why are you trying to create a new one? And they're like, well, my company's not going to be like that. Uh, we're not going to have that problem. And because, and I really press them, well, what is the specific plan you have to build a company that will be different? And they're like, well, we're, we are a different kind of person. We have different culture. We have different this in our DNA. And I'm like, okay, I get that. But now let's do a thought experiment. And I've, I've actually had this conversation with real 
lean startup founders who started out two guys in a garage in one of our workshops, you know, five years ago, and now have 10,000 employees. You know, once you hit that inflection point where you're going from like a handful of employees, dozens of employees, maybe a hundred employees to thousands of employees in a short amount of time. So, you know, you do the exercise. I've done this, like a town hall meeting with thousand employees present. You say, okay, everyone raise your hand uh, if you've been here six months or less. And like more than half the room raises their hand. It's stunning. Okay, how many of those people were there when the company was founded? Zero. How much experience do they have building a hyper-growth startup? Probably none. I mean, what are the odds that there just happened that previous job was also a hyper-growth startup right going through the hockey stick inflection point? Like just, like, just think about it. Statistically speaking, almost certainly where they were working before was a big company or they're right out of school or maybe they have some startup experience, but it wasn't a huge success. Otherwise, you'd be working for them. So you're importing into the organization a massive amount of non-startup DNA for people who need to be indoctrinated, trained, and culturated. And at the same time, I asked those same founders, show me your org chart. Who reports to who? What are the departments? And almost every time, you look on the whiteboard, and they've drawn the diagram. I said, guess what? Let me draw you the, the org chart of General Motors in 1921. And guess what? You're using the same org chart, the same organizational structure, the same management system that Alfred Sloan developed for General Motors in the 20s. So these two facts together, I think, paint kind of a bleak picture of what happens after we have that kind of initial product market fit burst of success. And it kind of has an interesting parallel in the ways that established companies, when they try to do internal innovation teams and internal startups, Lean Startup has really helped a lot of people get started on that journey, but we have not, as a movement, I think, paid enough attention to what happens in the success cases. How do we actually build a new class of organization that can continue to do Lean Startup, continue to reinvest and plant the seeds of its own disruption uh, as it goes? Uh, so kind of the shorthand I've been using lately is if, if Lean Startup, you know, we've talked a lot about how to build an engine of continuous innovation. The kind of 21st century challenge is going to be how do we build an engine of continuous transformation? How do we use these same tools and turn them inwards onto our own uh, corporate structure to try to stay relevant as the waves of change kind of come at us faster and faster in the next century? All right, so let's go straight to this, uh, this one here. Uh, it's anonymous. Um, so what do you make of Peter Thiel's criticism of lean startup ideology? I get this question a lot, and, and Peter, I... I consider Peter a friend, and he's an investor in my new company. I mean, the feud is way overblown, I think. And if you actually look, if you read his book and look at the specific criticism that he makes about Lean Startup, it's it's kind of not directed at us. So I think what happened is a lot of a lot of crappy startups took their same old crappy venture pitch and they lean washed it. You know, they put Lean Startup jargon on the. Uh, on the same old dumb thing, and, and a number of VCs reacted negatively to that in the early days. So if you look at his, his specific criticism, which is uh, you cannot make a breakthrough if you only kind of do iterative thinking and, and take small steps and um, just kind of A-B test your way to greatness. And the implication there, I think, is that uh, a, a lean startup is one that does not have a vision and does not have a big vision, is just kind of doing small stuff and tinkering around the edges. And listen, there are those startups, and they do use Lean Startup sometimes to try to justify that path. But I, when, I read it, when I read his book, you know, he, I, got, I got a galley copy you know, 
we had this conversation when it was still uh, when there was still an opportunity to edit it, which I think is also very interesting. Uh, I went back. I was like, did I did I forget to mention this in the lean startup? You know, like I I kind of felt like it, 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 is this is this my mistake? Like, did I just screw something up? So I, I actually went back. I rarely reopen the book now myself because as an author, rereading your own work is really painful. Uh, and I and I actually like went back. I was like, what, uh, on what page of the book did I address this issue? And the answer is page nine in the introduction. So I was like, okay, anyone who's at least read nine pages of Lean Startup would see. <laughs> like I specifically, like, and just so I'm being clear, this is not about doing something small. And it's not about that vision is unimportant. And that's like the basic lesson of the scientific method. I mean, can you imagine someone being like, well, scientists use experiments and iteration to find the truth. Therefore, like there are no creative geniuses in the field of science. It's like, I think that's right. I think like where, these, where your hypothesis comes from that's still a very profound question. So anyway, so I, I actually don't feel like there's that much of a disagreement, especially the specific techniques that he um, advocates in his book, and and you know, and which I have seen him do in a lot of companies. He doesn't use the same terminology that we use, but I think his his actual specific recommendations, you know, to dominate a small market with a limited product. I mean, it just it's very. I, I understand why he doesn't like the way that we frame the question. I understand why he doesn't want to use the same terminology that we use. Like, I, I feel like he is trying to do something a little bit different. Um, but I don't think that at the level of like the theoretical framework, it's really that different. Okay, cool. Thanks. Okay, next one here is, uh, oh, just got moved up. So do you think uh, lean startup principles are as, as effective in a B2B context where you have far less access to customers and an expectation to show the final product? Okay, so so I'm gonna try to answer the question behind the question, because I get I mean it's not a question I got a lot, and it's really a funny question because when I was joking about Steve Blank and I in the in the classroom, I remember I was there when MBA students would tell Steve, Steve, obviously this is going to work in a B2B context, but how would it ever work in the wild woolly you know consumer internet B2C? And Steve was like, Trust me, it will. Okay, just trust me. I don't know, but trust me. And I was sitting there, I remember I was sitting in the room, I was like, hey, I got a, I got a B2C story for this, like, no problem. And like, so the question behind the question is like, listen, hotshot, you, you know, whatever, you've had success at X, but how do we know that your theory is going to work for Y? And I'm going to give you the true, honest answer, answer you'll very rarely hear from any management guru or whatever, which is, we don't know. We don't know. You can never know from some talking head on a screen he says this thing is going to work and you should take his word for it. And the fact that you would ask that question, what do you really want to know? Because here's the thing. If you really wanted to know the answer, what you would really ask was, is this going to work for me, my company? No one cares if this works in general in some other person's industry. Every person to ask a question like this, a room full of entrepreneurs especially, there are no hypothetical questions. Uh, my, friend, my friend has a B2B startup and... The customer is really demanding, and they refuse to let us show them a prototype. And we, and my co-founder is kind of being a jerk and doesn't want to test anything because he says that we only get one chance to make a first impression. I don't know who you are, Anonymous, so I can't speak to you directly, but is your friend's company okay? Everything going well? <laughs> Maybe not. So can we have a real conversation about it? Seriously, and, I, and I, I will take honest questions off the record with names if you want because the truth is – most people who try Lean Startup try it on their second company, I feel like, more than on their first. You know, like, 
All I can tell you is, yes, I've seen it work in B2B contexts. I mean, I've seen this work in crazy B2B contexts. Forget like B2B software. I've done this for like deep sea oil drilling, uh, you know, uh, aircraft engines and, and healthcare devices and uh, government contracts and just like craziest stuff, fintech, regu highly regulated financial derivatives. I mean, I've seen all kinds of crazy stuff work. And of course, no matter how many of those stories you show people, there's always this question, but how do I know it will work in my company? I was working at a consumer packaged goods company once where the people were pretty skeptical and, and, and I was saying, you know, oh, but here's an example of it working in, you know, a different but like still retail packaged goods company. And they're like, well, those guys make food products. That's a whole, totally different shelf on the grocery store than we make, we make dry goods. And I'm like, come on, man. Yeah, I understand. Theirs come in a red box and yours come in a blue box. So it's not directly comparable. Totally. But can we draw some analogy here? And more importantly, can we agree that there's no way to know by reading a book or hearing a speaker or whatever, something's going to work for you? And listen, maybe Lean Startup worked all the way up until 2017, but it doesn't work anymore. Right? Then every story we tell you could be completely true and it could still be inapplicable. Maybe the world changed just yesterday and, you know, it, it doesn't work. Um, does anyone have like a Brexit theory about how Lean Startup doesn't work anymore or something? Like, I mean, like there's been these discontinuities in the world that have happened recently. So maybe, maybe it doesn't work in Trump's America. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, whatever you think, whatever crazy critique you hear or everything you're worried about, the only way to answer that question is to run the experiment yourself. Try to come up with a specific uh, thing that Lean Startup predicts that will happen. Try it out yourself and learn from that. And listen, I hope one day to be at your conference. You'll teach me the new thing that we overlooked. I, I'd be thrilled. No, I, honestly, nothing would make me happier. This is a scientific theory. We want to learn new things. So nothing would make me happier than we discover uh, by working together on this that what we've learned so far is just the tip of the iceberg. Nice. Okay, keep the questions coming in here. We've got a load of votes. Uh, let's go to the next one. Uh, again, this is from Anonymous. Uh, <laughs> how do you incentivize your entrepreneurs? Well, again, what's the question behind the question, right? This presupposes that entrepreneurs will not do the job unless properly incentivized, which in my experience is just not true. The issue of incentives, I, I don't think you have to incentivize people to be creative, to try new things, to take risks. That's, that's a natural part of the human condition. So in any organization of any size, especially once you get past, you know, Five, six, seven hundred people. Certainly, if you have a multi-thousand person or ten, God forbid, tens or hundreds of thousands of employee organization, you get to a certain size. The normal distribution of personality attributes is such that you will always, always, automatically have disruptors and entrepreneur-type rule breakers running around doing crazy stuff in your organization. Anyway, you already do. If you don't think that you do, it just means that you've built a culture where that has to happen underground and in secret. But every middle manager I've ever met has a little black book of names of if you have the misfortune of being assigned a crazy project with uncertain returns. Or if, like, God forbid your manager comes to you one day and says, I want to try something disruptive and new. And you're like, oh, Jesus, it's going to be bad for me. Or, you know, oh, no, we've, uh, a market competitor has just started something really unfortunate for us and we have to find a way to respond, but no one has a clue what to do. Everyone knows, like, there's certain people you call who are dumb enough to sign up for those kinds of projects. Those projects are career suicide because they have a high probability of failure. And in most organizations, failure is career limiting. And yet every middle manager does, well, you know, there's that one guy. I think 
when I need when I need a crazy project, he's kind of the kind of person I look for. So like everyone, there is a network of these folks. It just tends to be more underground. So the issue of incentives is actually much more about can you get those people naturally out into the open by saying the way that they work is okay. It's actually uh, good. And so then you're not sending them into battle with one or two hands tied behind their back. You're actually creating an organization that's supportive around them. And then because you brought it into the light, you can actually apply some risk mitigation and controls to the situation. So the problem with doing stuff off the books is you're completely off the books. There's no, you may not apply any of the corporate policies, but um, some policies really should apply even in an internal startup policies around ethics, compliance, uh, you know, we don't want to do anything illegal or unsafe or safety rules. Most entrepreneurs, the really good entrepreneurs I know do not want to violate safety rules, but um, you have to be really careful about making sure you have the right liability constraints around it. And and that those keywords I just mentioned, compliance, safety, risk, those are not, those don't become excuses not to do anything mm-hmm. innovative. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of organizations, the the fear of compliance is more of a problem than the actual compliance. And I can tell you lots of stories about that. But, but anyway, I think that's, that's the incentive design challenge. Okay, nice. Uh, so we're going to go with an actual person's name here, a question from an actual person called Julian. So, uh, let's, so your target customers, and maybe they're Julian's, uh, your target customers are large corporations with long purchasing cycles. How would you validate your product market fit faster? Sure. Uh, I mean, it's funny. People will be asking me questions for Steve Blank. I mean, he wrote a whole book about it called The Four Steps to Epiphany. It's like exactly how to do enterprise sales in this environment. It's a little dated now, but, but I still think it's, it's by far the book uh, on this question. So the theoretical answer to this is that what you lose – like the, the advantage of consumer internet is high volume rapid iteration because you have tons of customers coming through every day and you can run experiments. But people forget that the statistical process we use to do that involves losing a lot of information. When I have 10,000 people in an experiment, I don't really get to know any of those people very well. I just, they're just dots on a screen. That's why in the book we say metrics are people too. Like most entrepreneurs forget that the numbers on a screen are real people. The advantage, the huge strength of a long lead time sales cycle is you get to, you get a lot of rich data about every data point. So instead of, um, you know, you have this experiment with thousands of people, you may only have two or three conversations, but they're really in-depth and you really get to understand what's going on. Because, of course, a, a company is not a person, contrary to certain legal doctrines. A company is a collection of lots and lots and lots of people. So in order to make an enterprise sale like you're describing, there tends to be, you know, 12 different people you got to talk to. And there's a lot. It's like a very complicated value proposition. So, so really engaging in those conversations and taking advantage of that rich data kind of is the key. And then I would say that if you're having a hard time getting the customer to yes, you've picked the wrong customer or your value proposition is not compelling. Because there's a lot of famous stories about famous enterprise software products where you know, major, major corporations made a totally ridiculous leap of faith bet on the product way before it was ready without doing the proper betting and everything just because they were so desperate to solve the problem and they were so desperate to have a competitive advantage that that solution could give. Um, so it's also a matter of really, really being profoundly honest with yourself. Do you have a sales problem or is it actually a value proposition problem? And it's almost always the latter, not the former. Interesting. Okay, I'm uh, going to go with another person here who I have a name for, and then we'll come back to a, to an anonymous one. But uh, let's go with Sophia from uh, Cruxy. So there's a lot of talk about startups crashing, but when you're in the midst of it, how do you know that it's crashing? And secondly, how do you know when it's 
salvageable, salvageable. You're going to know. <laughs> you definitely know the first bit, right? <laughs> it is not confusing. The issue is not that you don't know. It's that you're too scared to say it out loud, Sophie. I'm going to go, I'm going to go way out on a limb here and say it's probably not salvageable. And the fact that you're asking me this question might want to have one of those difficult conversations with your co-founder kind of right now about is this really working? And the truth is, listen, I don't mean to make fun of this. This is one of the hardest things any of us ever has to do. It's just brutal. Uh, denial is the issue. So, so generally speaking, when it's not working, people know that it's not working, but they don't want to say so because having that conversation can be perceived as being the cause of the problem, not an attempt to solve the problem. I've been there. I remember, I won't name any names. I'm having a conversation, you know, an early company and, you know, I'm like, I think guys, is it possible that this isn't working? And of course, the first thing someone said is you're the reason it's not working. Because you obviously don't believe. So I was like, what's my, I'm, I raise, you're shooting the messenger. I'm just bringing up the possibility, guys. Is it, it's like there's this asteroid coming towards us. We're all going to die. And it's like, is it because I don't believe or is it because of the fucking asteroid? <laughs> that seems like the bigger issue. So can we talk about that? But that's very difficult to do, especially when you've invested yourself psychologically in convincing everybody that it is going to work. Uh, it's, it's brutally hard. Now, is it salvageable or not? You can't know that now. There's no way to know. All you can say is it's either working or it's not working. If it's not working, we need to pivot and try something new to find out if it's salvageable. So like a lot of startups that are famous today came within days or weeks of running out of cash, you know, like almost had multiple near-death experiences where they almost completely blew up and they just barely got back on track. So it's always salvageable in theory. The question is, can you actually attempt a new strategic hypothesis? And the reason why most companies don't and they die, and really think about this, most founders would rather have their company die than pivot. Doesn't make sense. You're like, why? Wouldn't you would think, but like I have seen it time and time and time again. If you don't pivot, if you just stay the course, people feel like there's a chance that things could just magically work out. But if you do pivot, you're admitting failure. And now you foreclose that possibility. And it's actually more psychologically painful to people, I think, to feel like I almost made idea A work. I pivot to idea B. Then somebody else makes a billion dollars with idea A, and I feel like a real idiot because I didn't stick to my guns. I mean, that people find that truly psychologically painful. And if that is you, then let's just cut the facade. You're not going to pivot. Your company's going to die. It's fine. Um, Listen, I, and I'd be thrilled to be wrong. Maybe you get lucky and I'm wrong. I mean, like, I'd be thrilled to be wrong. But, like, generally speaking, people who are on the brink of cut product market fit or experiencing product market fit, they don't have time for questions. They don't have time to go to conferences. They don't have time for anything but servicing the success of their startup. And everyone else is dying. <laughs> so, you know, I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news, but a whole point of a conference like this is to help us with use a theoretical framework to try to prevent that from happening. So I would say that, what you have to do is just get to clarity with your co-founders, with your team. Is it working or not? Like, are we actually getting closer to our vision or not using the current strategy? And most teams can't answer that question. So they don't know. So all they can do is have politics and arguments and emotional garbage. So if you don't know, the first thing to do is not, don't even ask the question, is it working? Just what do we have to do to evaluate if we're making progress or not? What does progress even mean? Like a lot of people have a business plan that's something like, 
once everyone in the world is using my product, then it will definitely be a success. And you're like, okay, excellent. But will, it, will the product have any value before then? No. So my plan is to use network effects through magic to have the product have zero, 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 zero value. 99% of the world is using it, zero value. 100% boom, infinite value. It's like a very steep hockey stick, complete discontinuous step change. No products actually grow that way. That's not real. So no matter how steep the slope and no matter how polynomial the expansion, there's some way to detect the growth of value in that early flat part of the hockey stick. And if you're on that flat part, you have to do that work in order to tell the difference between a flat part of the hockey stick and just zero, 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 zero off into the indefinite horizon. So that's, I mean, that is what the framework is for. Cool. I think we can just sneak uh, one last question in. Um, I'm going to have to cut it slightly, but um, despite businesses using the lean approaches from James, um, hey, despite James. businesses using the lean approach, what do you think holds people back from driving real change, from actually driving real change? Whew, there's so many things to choose from. Look, uh, people do not change very well. It's not really our superpower uh, as individuals, as a species, as a, uh, you look at human psychology, we're really not good at it. And also organizations are designed to resist change. It's their job. So most organizations, most middle managers, they get paid to keep all of their reports on track. That's their job. So like, I mean, if you're a middle manager, anyone know it's a middle manager? I mean, you know, every freaking day, somebody walks into your office and says, I got a great idea, boss. Why don't we uh, give our product away for free for no reason? I'm gonna go do that. And your job as a middle manager is to be like, hey, thank you for that suggestion. Thrilled to have your buy-in, you know, good, <laughs> Good suggestion, good giving, speaking up, that's great. But remember, we have a corporate strategy and redirect your energy to rowing in the same direction as everybody else. If we all row in this direction, look at these amazing things that are going to happen. And the employee has to be like, oh, I feel so great to be heard and right. I'm bought into the new direction. Off I go. The curse of innovation, truly the curse, is that one time in a million, like let's say you're working at a music company in the 90s and Napster just came on the scene. Every once in a while, the random dude with a horrible idea walks into your office is right. We actually should give our product away for free on the internet, or we're dead. But most of the time, 999,999 times out of a million, they're wrong. So you're paying your middle managers to make sure that that innovative thing doesn't happen. You're literally paying them to prevent innovation. And if you look at the history of management, there's a whole science to this. Like there's a reason why it is that way. We, we made a breakthrough in the 20th century to realize through what was called statistical process control that deviation, variation is your enemy when you're trying to achieve a consistent result. And so we built organizational structures to drive down variance. But innovation is a casualty of that process because innovation is positive variance. And you know, uh, Paul Graham calls it black swan farming. You're intentionally trying to create black swan events on purpose which is the, uh, it's like the antithesis of statistical process control. Now, it's the antithesis in the same way that like the screwdriver and a hammer are the antithesis of each other. Like they're trying to accomplish two different things by two different methods. So it's not that like, you wouldn't be like a hammer is good and a screwdriver is bad. You were like, well, you know, 
if you need to bang on something with, you know, it's like there's a certain situation where you really want to use a hammer. And there's other situations where you really want to use a screwdriver. And there's other situations, you know, where they, each tool has its own purpose. So I would say that the real issue for most organizations is not that they're resistant to change, is that they have built a foundation that pays people to use the wrong tool for this problem. So like, it's not that they have bad people, resistant people, slow people, it's none of that. It's that you're paying them to do, it's like it goes back to incentive design. You're literally paying them to make sure that they only ever use a hammer. And so then you come in and like, oh, and also by the way, could you use a screwdriver? And you're just like, well, boss, you pay me to use a hammer only. And if I see a screwdriver to take it away and confiscate it and put it in the penalty box, like, so why are you telling me to do that when you pay me? It's like, so then, then bosses are like, this guy resists change. It's like, he doesn't resist change. You're giving him contradictory instructions. There's no way he could possibly make you happy. And guess what? The, one of your instructions comes with his paycheck attached, and the other ones are like, hey, wouldn't it be nice if? And guess which one he pays more attention to? Like, <laughs> genius. You know, like, I can't believe. So I just think we have to like, get honest about that and look in the mirror and say, we as the leaders of organizations, we cause the problems that frustrate us. So grow up. Take it seriously and ask yourself, am I actually aligning the incentives, systems, and structures of my organizations with the things I nominally am asking my employees to do? Most, most managers don't like that question very much, and I think with good reason. So we got to get more serious about that. that. To me, that's actually the root cause of the problem of resistant change. Cool. Well, uh, Eric, you've been really kind to answer the questions from the audience. If you had 60 seconds, anything you want to say to the crew here uh, before we wrap oh, it up listen, for the I'm, day? I'm profoundly grateful. If someone had told me five, ten years ago that there would be a Lean Startup Conference in London, I mean, incredible. So so just the fact that this is happening at all is profoundly moving to me, and I'm very grateful that you've, uh, you've chosen to spend your time with us. And I guess my, my, my hope for you is, like, just what I was saying before, please don't take anybody's word for it. If you found this interesting, inspiring, useful, helpful, like go test it out. And if you think it's moronic, stupid, waste of time, idiotic, also please go test it out. Either way, whatever you come out of this believing, like run the experiment. And listen, I, I nothing would make me happier than to be wrong and to learn something new. So if you do discover something, either something you learned from the conference and worked out for you, but also you tried something that we suggested and it didn't work, or you tried something different and it did work, whatever you learned, whatever happened, please you know, pay it forward, give back to the community, teach the rest of us. I look forward to learning from you in the future. Okay. Thanks. We'll, uh, we'll see you in San Francisco anyway in November, but uh, I really look, look forward, forward to, to seeing the book come to life. Thank you so much, yeah, Eric. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Cool.